So does God speak? Does God speak? I know a lot of people might be going, wandering around saying, oh, well, God told me this and God told me that. And some of you are going, well, he doesn't tell me that kind of stuff. But so does God speak? And if so, how? Well, according to the word of God, he does speak. And that's what we are looking at in Psalm 19. Last week in verses 1 through 6, the title of the message was The Sky Proclaims the Glory of God. And we saw that God clearly speaks through and be, can clearly be seen in nature, although that is a nonverbal communication. Uh, this week, David, King David, lived about a thousand years before Jesus. Uh, we continue, but now he turns from the nonverbal form to the verbal form of communication from God, the Scripture. And so the title of our message is, The Scripture Proclaims the Glory of God. Last week, we said that nature is what we call general revelation. It means it's for everyone. Well, that should tell us one thing about God, how much he values everyone, that he would let everybody be able to know something about him through nature, but it's really incomplete. It really can't tell us. Nonverbal communication can only go so far. And, and now he gives us the Word of God, the Scripture, which we call special revelation, different than general revelation, and he gives it for people to read, for people to hear, and especially for him to speak uh, to his people. If you're not one of his people, we're glad that you're here tonight, and I'm trusting that God is going to, in fact, speak to you. So when you talk about things like nature, you talk about experience, you talk about the Scripture, how do you know which is more reliable? A lot of times people say, well, God told me this, and, you know, People who know the Bible will say, well, God didn't tell you that. You go, you don't know what he told, he told me. We'll say, well, we know he didn't tell you that. And so how do you know what is more reliable? And actually, the Apostle Peter, when he was older, told us this. And uh, he saw a general revelation, what we call the transfiguration. He saw Jesus on the mountain with Moses and Elijah. So he experienced that. It was a form of general revelation to him anyway in terms of experience. And he also walked with Jesus and experienced that. But he tells us what's really more reliable than even our own experience, even the stuff that we see with our own eyes. He wrote this, 2 Peter chapter, uh, 1, verse 16 through 18. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He's like, we saw it. We looked. We saw him. We saw all the miracles. We saw the transfiguration on the mountain. We, we heard the voice of God. We'll see that in a second. We were there. Verse 17. For he received from God, Jesus received from God the Father, honor and glory, when such a voice came uh, to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice. He's now he's like, okay, we saw it and we heard it, which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Now we go to verse 19. And so we, when he, who's we? Well, that would be the people that he's writing to. That would be presumably followers of Jesus. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed. Another version says we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, or another version says made certain or made sure. Literally, he's saying we have the more sure prophetic word, that the word of God 
is actually more sure and more reliable than our personal experience, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. What does that mean? That means that they weren't just making it up as they went along. That they, that's not how the Bible was written. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were, and I like to slow down here and go, as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Now, it's interesting when you read, it doesn't compromise their personalities and who they are. Some are fiery, some are more cerebral, some are more melancholy, but yet God moved them as they wrote the Word of God. Now, let's understand something. Peter is not saying that what he saw is what made the Scriptures true. That's not what he's saying. He's saying something very different. He is saying that the Word of God is more trustworthy even than his own experience. He is saying that the Word of God was more trustworthy than what he saw with his eyes and what he heard. Why? Because the Scripture is of divine authority. In the same way, going back now a thousand years, David is moving us here in Psalm 19 from the revelation of nature, we could say the revelation we all experience in nature, to the sure Word of God. Now, I understand that for many of us, this is a foreign concept. For many of us, this is experience is everything. You don't know where I've been. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've experienced. Yet, many people will tell you, and we'll talk a little bit about this in a while, that they have a lot of regrets chasing experience over facts. They have a lot of regrets over chasing experience over the Word of God. So we pick up in verse 7. David begins with the revelation of God's Word, moving from nature to God's Word. And I want to read verse uh, 7 twice because it's our introductory verse. He says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul... The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Well, let's go through it again slowly. The law, that's the, the Torah. The Torah of the Lord, of Yahweh, the covenant name of God, which he did not use in the first six verses. It's the personal name of God, is perfect, converting the soul. Other versions say reviving the soul, refreshing the soul, renewing the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. Another version says it is trustworthy, making wise the simple. The Holman Christian Standard Bible says making the inexperienced wise or the inexperienced wise. So nature's sermons did not use words. Again, God's word certainly does. And this is how the Lord does more than just make us aware of him, it is through his word that he draws us in close to him. He tells us about himself. And David begins by telling us that the word of God is perfect. What, is that? what does that mean? It means that it's absolutely flawless. It means that you can trust it. Now, the translators generally use the word law. 
And I said to you that when that word law could be the word Torah, I think that's a much better way to think of it than the law. Because what does law make you think of? Law makes you think of things you can't do. Can't do this, can't do that. I was in a, I was in a vehicle the other day, a rent-a-vehicle, and it said, absolutely no smoking in this vehicle, right? I had no desire to smoke till I read that sign, right? That's the way we are as people. And so, and so we think of law as something that we can't do, but the word Torah is a much broader word, and it has to do with the Lord's instruction and the Lord's guidelines to us. And the scripture, as we just said, tells us a lot about God and, and the words that are used here about the word of the Lord, he's going to use some really neat descriptive words, are also true of the living God. He's perfect. He's sure. He is trustworthy. Notice here the reviving effect the word of the Lord has on the true people of God. This is a season we are living in right now where people really need to be personally revived personally renewed in their faith. We talked about some of that stuff uh, this, this past Sunday. And so it says here that it can, it can convert people, right? It can convert the soul and, and actually can convert people from unbelieving people to committed followers of Jesus Christ. But again, the words reviving, refreshing, and renewing are there too. Each one of those words I love. They just make me want to, to, want to relax and rest in God. And, and the effect is the various things that the effects that the Word of God can have upon you, most notably that it can make you, the Word of God can make you into the person that God intended you to be. So it starts and continues with the assurance and confidence that the Lord has cleansed us of our sins. It's an amazing thing. We, we, we kind of blow past the forgiveness of sins, but a lot of us don't feel forgiven. A lot of us don't feel cleansed because we've done stupid things. We'll talk about that in a minute. And, and, so, and so the Word of God tells us about how God is perfect and He's trustworthy and, and He will save us, as we talked about Sunday, by grace through faith. In addition to reviving, making us feel confident, the Word of the Lord also calls us to repent and return to God. Repent, turn around, return to God. The same way we become Christians is the same way we live out the Christian life. Now, let me ask you a question. Some people say, well, I can worship God out on the lake fishing. I love fishing. I absolutely love fishing. But I've never, you know, reeled in a big fish and felt the desire to repent. I'm just being honest with you. Now, you might say, well, if it was catch and release and you didn't throw it back in, Pastor Jim. No, okay, that's not what I'm talking about. But it's relaxing, yes. I can appreciate God in nature, yes. I can appreciate His creation. But I never really thought like, oh, this fish is really making me want to, you know, confess my sins to God and feel cleansed by Him. The word of the Lord is used by God to reveal himself to us. And one of the purposes of that is to respond to him in faith and trust. And that will include, as we will see both today and on Sunday, to love him 
and to obey him. Or let me put it to you this way. To obey him is to love him. Notice it says it makes the wise simple. Okay? The wise simple. It, it makes that, the, the wise making wise, or making wise the simple. You know, a lot of people are kind of simple in the sense of we don't really think about what we're going to do. And I'll have a special message for the young people. Uh, every church, this church is no exception. So many adults are filled with dumb things they did when they were young. Please, save yourself a lot of heartache, a lot of counseling, a lot of, a lot of difficulty, a lot of regret, and, and, and become wise now so you don't do all of those things. And the word of the Lord carefully studied and engaged in, carefully engaged, and not just read, but engaged in, will actually give you and impart to you the wisdom of God. That, what, what, what is that? do. That will lead you to good decisions. God's wisdom will lead you to good decisions. God's wisdom will lead you to good reads on situations. You'll be like, I think I need to get out of here. Or I think I see there's more going on here than, than meets the eyes. But it also will keep you, God's wisdom, from ruin and from destruction. I would say, however, uh, it seems necessary that we have a desire for wisdom if we're going to obtain it. And that's where there's a beautiful New Testament promise in James 1.5. He says, if you need wisdom, just ask God for it. He'll be happy to give you tons and tons and tons of it. Verse 8 says, the statutes, some versions say precepts. Now, I know a lot of people like to break down every single word, what it means. I'm not so sure that's what David's doing. I think he's just trying to give us this all-encompassing package of the Word of God, the statutes or the precepts. We might call them the, the general rules or principles to live by. The statutes of the Lord are right. What, what does that mean? Right means not crooked. You know, when you like a ruler or you're trying to set a right angle or you're maybe in construction, you're measuring something. You, don't, you want everything to be precise. And, and the Word of the Lord is Right, rejoicing the heart, the commandment of the Lord is pure. Some versions say radiant, enlightening the eyes. Now, for people who are not followers of Jesus, I understand how this would make little to no sense to you. He says right here, living out God's authority in our lives makes us joyful. Now, most of us think, that living under any authority is a pain, but living under God's authority, he's like this killjoy, gives you a bunch of rules, a bunch of things that you can't do. But David says, no, 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 that's not true at all. Okay, the statutes or the precepts of, of the Lord will actually put rejoicing in your heart. That's not just being happy. It's much broader than that. That's an inner peace and tranquility knowing that your life is right with God. Let me put it to you this way. It's not walking around feeling guilty all the time. Whether it's lots of guilt or a low level of guilt, you'll, yes, there are foolish things you did in the past, but you're like, well, that was foolish. Thank you for the blood of Jesus. Jesus, thank you for taking care of that on the cross. 
And David understands that for a, for a follower of Yahweh, as far as he was concerned, for us, a follower of Jesus, we look back to the Messiah. He was waiting for the Messiah. That faithful living is not restrictive. Did you hear that? David is telling us that faithful living is not restrictive. Rather, it gives us confidence that we are on the right path. Fair to say, I think that the church needs a much more positive view of the Old Testament. It's, David would say, if people say, well, I'm just reading the New Testament. I don't really care about that. A bunch of laws and rules and stuff like that. David would say, it's, it's not a burden. It's a joy waiting to be discovered. And until you get out there and start living under the precepts and the statutes of God, you and I won't experience that. Uh, far from a burden, David would say. He says, the commandment of the Lord is pure. It is, it is radiant. It is, it is enlightening the eyes. Notice the word commandment is singular. He doesn't say the commandments. He says the commandment. In other words, the whole of what God wants from his people is enlightening, is joyful. So, so the word of God, remember this, it's not a buffet. It's not like you, you go up to and you go, well, I'll have some of those, I'll have some of those. I don't really like that part. I don't really like that part. No, it's not one of those things. God wants us to engage in the totality of his word. Being trustworthy and pure, he says, the word of the Lord enlightens the eyes. Did you ever see someone who's full of joy? Where can you really see it? You can see it in their eyes. You can see it in their smile. You can see it in their countenance. But I think David here is also speaking of clarity. When, when David is invested in the word of the Lord, he knows that he's seeing the world more clearly. And friend, you and I will as well. The more we are invested and engaged in the word of God, the more clearly we will see the world. Verse 9. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Let's remember that phrase, enduring forever. Another version says standing forever. forever. The judgments, or some versions say the rulings, the decrees, the ordinances of the Lord are true. Another version says reliable and righteous altogether. So now David makes a switch on us here. Notice he talks about the fear of the Lord. Well, that's not, God doesn't have the fear of the Lord. Uh, he switches to people who have the fear of the Lord. We've called it in the past their trembling trust. And notice that God says here, their trembling trust, their fear of the Lord makes them clean. What, what is clean? I think, I think it means that the word of the Lord and the fear of the Lord produces what is acceptable to God and what honors Him. This is a characteristic of a faithful believer that they are, what he says here, enduring forever. So, so having the fear of the Lord, enduring forever, 
you can bet, is something that will never go out of style. You're not going to get to heaven and go, yeah, do we fear the Lord here? Do we obey the Lord here? They're going to be like, yeah, we do it forever, man. That's, that's the way we run up here. That's the way we roll. It will never go out of style, nor will it decay. Jesus said, my words will never pass away. But along with that promise essentially comes this, that Jesus' words will never pass away, nor will anyone who puts their trust in Jesus and their trust in his word. In terms of the word of the Lord, fearing the Lord is demonstrated by humility, by conforming our lives to the word of the Lord and trusting in the word of the Lord. And throughout the scriptures, we see that the, the effect of that is glorious. The, the word of the Lord can cause all kinds of good things to happen in the life of a believer, things that would otherwise be impossible without the word of God. A follower of Jesus is someone really who is submitted to the word of God. They have a certain thing they want to do or they don't want to do, and they go to the Word of God, and, and God gives them the answer, and then it's clear the way they need to live their lives. And someone who is submitted to the Word of the Lord will, will notice an increase in integrity, will notice an increase in purity, will notice in a, an increase in growth in righteousness. Now, some of you are saying, I don't really see that happening to me. But I can't tell you how many times people have told me that they watched a television show and they turned it off because they didn't think it was appropriate. Or they even walked out of a movie because they didn't think that it was appropriate. Or they didn't cheat on their taxes. Or they felt like they needed to tell the truth about something. This is the effect of the word of the Lord, the grace of God, and the indwelling Holy Spirit speaking to you, changing you from the inside out. So having told us about the Lord's uh, being true, pure, reliable, uh, converting, about his, that how he, has, he speaks to us a joy-inducing word. Verse 10 continues what, where verse 9 took us. The end of verse 9 says this, the judgments, remember, rulings, decrees, ordinances, you could say, of the Lord are true, they're reliable, and righteous altogether. Look at verse 10, uh, more to be desired. Now, interesting word there. It actually means, the literal meaning of that word is coveted. Now, that's not a word we like to talk about too much in Christian circles because we think like coveting is bad. Like, you know, neighbor pulls in with a brand new car and you're like, I want that car. You're like, oh, I'm coveting, I'm coveting. The Apostle Paul said, it was coveting. That's what busted me on the Ten Commandments. But it really means that, that, that the judgments of God, the rulings of God, the decrees of God, the ordinances of God are to be coveted more desired, more coveted are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, lots of gold, uh, pure gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. So verse 7 to 9 describes the character of God's word. Now David describes how he, David, how we should desire God's word. He's telling us if we really want to grow, we need to desire God's word in this way. David hopes and prays that we would want the word of God more than pure gold. That when we think of the word of God, we say to ourselves, 
that is something that I have to have. You know the way some of you are when a new uh, you know, iPhone comes out or some new piece of technology comes out or something comes out, you're like, I have to have one of those. And David wants us to say every day, I have to have the word of the Lord. And this beam seems to be speaking of the high value, pure gold, and the transforming effect. Honey would be something that would bring energy or, or just delight to them of the transforming effect that the word of God has on a follower of Jesus. David sees spiritual treasure. That's what the word of God is to him. That's what the scripture is to David. Spiritual treasure as being worth far more than any earthly treasure that is available. And he was a rich guy later in his life. He, he knew this stuff, but he knew what was the most valuable thing to him. Also, he says that for us and for him, we all want, or we should want, desire the word of the Lord to be sweeter than honey. And surprisingly, he says, we are to covet it. So a lot of times we think coveting is bad. This would obviously be some sort of a holy coveting, purely desiring the truth of God's word. And when we desire the truth of God's word, we will find out, and the purity of God's word, we will find out that it drowns out the voices of this world. Now, let's just think about that for one second. You know, in various cultures, they'll, you'll read a verse of the Bible, and you'll just think, okay, well, that makes sense. Other people in other parts of the world, they read it and they're like, well, that doesn't make sense at all. You know, love your enemy. We're thinking, yeah, sure, fine, love your enemy. Well, what about when they're coming with guns to, to attack or to burn your village? Do you have a right to defend yourself? Yes, you do. And so, and so is that loving them? Well, you can be the judge of that. But there's, there's various things that, that we think about, and that's part of the word of God being true. See, it's interesting right now in our country, we're going through things that we're looking back at people who lived 100 or 200 years ago, and we're like, what a bunch of idiots that they could actually think like this. Well, I've got some really bad news for you. Should the Lord not return 100 years from now or 200 years ago from now, they're going to think the stuff that we thought was really stupid <laughs> because culture is always changing. That's why God says that, I give you this sure word. This is something that you can depend on, something that will, 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 la will endure forever. And a lot of times you say, well, it has things maybe that I don't like. Well, it's like anything else. God's people don't always live up to it, or we don't understand it, or we don't look at the context of it. There's so many ins and outs. That's why we need to study it so, so very carefully. And many, uh, may, may the value of truth and the sweet joy of knowing God consume our thoughts and our hearts and bring us clarity and, and, and bring together just righteousness to our lives. It says at the end of verse 9 that, that they're righteous altogether. It means that everything in the Scripture altogether, they're all, all the Scriptures are all righteous. Verse 11 Moreover, by them, by these, these judgments, these rulings, these decrees, these ordinances of the Lord, your servant is 
warned. Interesting. He says it's a joy on the one hand, and then now he says, but, but I'm also warned. And, and you would think next he says, and in keeping them, it is a great burden. That's what you would expect it to say, but that's not what it says. It says, and in keeping them, there is great reward. You see, Jesus obeyed them to the point, the decrees of God, to laying down his life, dying on the cross in our place for our sins. And here's the interesting thing. We notice about Jesus, wherever he went, he was always quoting the Bible. He was always quoting the Old Testament. That's why sometimes people say, I don't like the Old Testament. I'm like, you don't, you don't like the Bible that Jesus was always quoting? He was always quoting it. How much did Jesus love the word of the Lord? How much? He quoted it on the cross. That's how much he loved it. Now, a lot of people in our culture today, they, they don't want to hear anything that makes them uncomfortable. And they wonder why they continue to fail in the same way over and over and over again. You see, David's telling us that the Word of God warns us of the landmines of sin and shows us the right path, which is we're just going to walk on and that path, he says, is full of great reward. Another thing that David does here, and I love this, we don't know exactly when he writes some of these psalms, but David calls himself, we don't know whether when it was a shepherd boy or when he was waiting, he was, God said you're the king, and then Saul didn't want to give up the throne, or when he actually became king. But David calls himself your servant. He says, Lord, I am your servant. What does that mean? That means, Lord, I commit myself to you. I commit myself to your Torah, to your law, to your wise instruction, to your wisdom. I commit myself to your will, Lord. Friends, I, I say this in love. I, I really believe that this is a big thing holding a lot of Christians back. You see, if you're really going to experience joy in obeying the word of the Lord, if you're really going to experience the wisdom of God, you're going to have to give yourself fully to the Lord and to his will. You really are. You can't constantly be fighting with him because you are not going to win. And a lot of people are so frustrated and so stressed out. I'm not saying there's not a time to be frustrated. I'm not saying we, times we don't get stressed out. But their life is just one big knot because they are really fighting with God. Because here's the thing. There's the world of the unbelieving person and there's the world of the follower of Jesus. The Scripture says that the man or woman who lives with one foot in both worlds... They are unstable in all their ways. It is the place of complete misery. And so having heard this about God, he speaks through nature. He speaks through his word. Verse 12 through 14 takes us to the response of God's people to the revelation of God, and in particular to the revelation of God's Savior. Verse 12, who can understand his errors. The, another version says, who, who can understand his own errors? 
you and I, we, we, we struggle to understand our own errors. Another version, I love it, says this, his unintentional sins. And he says to the Lord, cleanse me from secret faults or cleanse me from hidden faults. David knows that there's things that we do that are against God's law, that are against God's Torah, that are against God's precepts, that we don't even know that we do them. That we are blind, as we say around here a lot, we are blind to our blindness, and there are sinful tendencies David is admitting that he is blind to, that he just doesn't see. And here's the problem with those tendencies. We don't see them, but lots of other people see them. But we're not spiritually sharp enough. Are you saying we're dull, Pastor Jim? Well, I'm saying I'm dull to see it in ourselves. We're blind. Now, in the one sense, if you are aware of some of your faults and you're working on them, this whole thing may sound very negative to you, but I hope maybe it will help some of you give up on your perfectionism. Okay? You are not perfect. Yes, if you put your trust in Jesus, you are perfect in God's eyes. You're positionally perfect. Practically, you still sin. Positionally, in His eyes, you are perfect. So it's like you have a little kid, or just like, oh, you know, little kid's perfect. Talk to mommy and daddy. They're not perfect. And so, and so we can hopefully give up on our perfectionism. It's not a big deal that you're not perfect. Did you hear that? Breathe easy. It's okay. Since you can't be perfect, why rack your brains trying to be perfect? Now, that does not mean you don't try your best at everything you can do. Colossians tells us that we are to do everything we are unto the glory of God. We are to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. So that, I'm not saying we don't do our best, but we have to understand that we're just not going to be perfect. Uh, teaching youth group for years, I would say, you know what? Some kids are straight A's and they never open a book. They never try. And other kids, they're working their tail off, getting C's and B's, B's and C's. Well, you know what? That's okay. Be the best B and C student you can be and you'll probably end up being the boss because of your work ethic will carry you further in the long run than just your smarts, except for a few, there's a few exceptions here and there. On the other hand, David also wants us to see that we should not take our sins too lightly. And this is something I fear that some people do. And we're going to get an explanation from this on, from Jesus on Sunday. So I don't want to, I don't want to tip my hat on that, other than to say that, that Jesus is going to really kind of talk about this Sunday. But I know for a lot of you, you've grown tired of people who will say stuff like, well, that's just the way I am. That they, they justify everything that they constantly are doing to you, saying, well, this is just the way God made me. You know, they're just like, other people go, well, I'm just being honest. Everybody else is like, no, you're just obnoxious. So, so we don't want to be those people. We don't want to take our sins too lightly. 
because David, and God does more so. If you don't believe what God thinks about the sin, just look at the cross. God takes his, I mean, David, sorry, takes his sin very seriously, realizing that the word of God and people and circumstances will reveal his sin in time. Verse 13, he says, Keep back, again, your servant also from presumptuous sins. Another version says willful sins. Another version says arrogant sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Another version says let them not rule over me. Isn't that interesting? David's saying when the word of God speaks, God speaks. So God is saying that when you have willful, arrogant, deliberate sins, those things will actually have dominion over you. Those will actually rule over you. In other words, you know something is wrong, but you do it or you continue to do it anyway, and it's not a big deal to you anymore after a while. He says those things will rule over you. So he says, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless, and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Another version says, innocent and cleansed from blatant rebellion. Now, in verse 12, David said, Lord, please pardon my sins of ignorance. If I don't know what I'm doing and nobody tells me what I'm doing, please pardon me. Here he says, please pardon my deliberate sins, which are enslaving. And, and these sins, and the Word of God wants it to hurt, really, that these are sins that are consciously done. We're consciously doing them with no regard to God, whether you are a believer or not. Even the most devout of believers need the grace of God to avoid sin because we are so easily deceived. But trusting the Lord Jesus and being immersed in the Word of God will, will make this big, big change in you. And, and this is going to take time, and it's going to take effort. Remember, we said God saves us, but last week our responsibility is what last Sunday? Our responsibility is to abide. And so what will happen over time is, is that you, you, as you, the more you trust Jesus, the more you immerse yourself in the Word of God, you will start to sense God loves you more. It's the interesting thing about the Word of God. The Word of God tells you who you are, and you're like, oh, that's, not, that's ugly. But it also tells you what God thinks of you, and you're like, oh, that's beautiful. So instead of living in the middle, you're, you're, you're putting those two things together, and you're saying, wow, this is great, and you will start to love God more. And as you start to love God more, you will start to sin less. That will happen, especially these consciously done sins. Something interesting here. It's a word that kind of struck me. It said, then I shall be blameless and, and shall be innocent of great transgression. Interesting, the word then. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. What does he mean by great transgression? 
Let me ask you a question. Don't count this against my time. So just a conversation, just between you and me. Are you concerned about falling away from Jesus? I mean, do you ever really think about that? I've told you sometimes I think about that stuff and then I'm driving down the road. I'm like, what am I thinking like that for? Are you, are you, are you concerned about that? Well, let me tell you something, my friend. You should be. You should be. Not to the point in time where it's paralyzing you, but to the point in time where you are aware of it. See, David is saying, it's as if David is saying, really, verse 12, Lord, cleanse me of my hidden sins. And verse 13, keep me from presumptuous or willful or arrogant sins. Then, he says, I shall be innocent of great transgression. What's great transgression? I think it's more than just committing some other sin. I think it's actually falling away. I think David knows that the more you get into the habit of sinning and not caring about it, that before you know it, you're going to fall away. The term we use for that, the theological term for that is apostasy or apostasize. You'll say somebody committed apostasy or they apostasize. The problem is that many people who apostasize don't see it. Why? Because of the blindness. They don't see it because of the blindness. And when it's actually happening, and in some cases when it's happened, they don't even know that it's happened. It seems that, that apostasy and loved ones, this is so important where we are right now as a country, where we are right now as a world. Please, please, I'm begging of you, listen to me here. It seems that apostasy or walking away from the Lord is not on the radar of a lot of Christians. Why? Because of their misunderstanding of what we call the assurance of salvation. Now, God doesn't want you walking around on eggshells wondering, am I a Christian, am I not a Christian? He, he, that's not necessarily what he wants you to do unless maybe you're not one and, and, and that's, that's something he wants you to really think about. But a lot of people will live their life however they want. They said, I said the prayer. I walked down the aisle. I went up to the front. I said the prayer. I invited Jesus into my heart. And the, and the preacher said, if you say that prayer, you're in and you can be assured that you're in. So what are you going on and on about? What's this guy David going on and on about? Why is Jesus going to tell us on Sunday that we got to, there's a certain way we got to live to show that we have the assurance of salvation? Why, why, what's up with all of these guys? You see, this is why the Bible constantly warns us. Because the Bible doesn't want you and me to lull into thinking that its warnings aren't for us. The Bible wants us to know that any one of us is capable of apostasy. People say, well, they weren't really Christians. Other people go, well, they decided to walk away from the Lord. They didn't want to be Christians anymore. Let them go. Let those people argue about that. Let them. We want to abide. We want to stay close to Jesus. We don't want to walk away. But a lot of people, I think, because they're so thinking, well, it doesn't matter how I live, they think that the warnings are for other people. 
You notice a lot of times when I'll say, well, that's the same for you and for me because I'm in the line with the sinners. I'm in the line with the sinners. There's only one guy who got in line with the sinners who was not a sinner. And that was when Jesus got in the line with the sinners to be baptized by John the Baptist. So I'm in line, man. I'm bad, man. I got a bad thought life. I got a, you know, I got a foul mouth. I got all this stuff. Hey, Jesus, what do you, what do you, what's your sin? I don't have any. <laughs> but he's, he's in the line. He's in the line with the sinners because he's identifying with us. Now, people, if, here's the thing, loved ones. Listen, please, please keep listening to me. When we talk about walking away from the Lord, if you say, I could never do that, friend, listen to me, you might already be on your way. That's the problem. There's people who I have met over the years who said, I never thought I could do that. And inside, I'm thinking to myself, that was your problem. That was your problem. I have never heard, I've said this to you before, I've never met with anybody, heard them confess a sin to me and say, I could never do that. I've never said that. I have thought to myself at times, I don't think I would do that. Other times I think, I go, oh, I could do that. But I don't think I do. But I never said I could never do that. And I believe a season like we are in right now with this COVID virus is being used by God as we're going to see a lot of people walk away from the faith to show us that God's going to warn us that any one of us could do that. Better to have a healthy, underline the word healthy, if you're writing down notes. Some of you have more notes than I do after the sermons. Most of you do, actually. A lot of you do. Underline the word healthy. Better to have a healthy non-compulsive, underline that word too, a better to have a healthy, non-compulsive fear of falling away and realizing that God uses the warnings in the Bible, uses the fear of falling away in the Bible to keep you from doing it, to keep me from doing it. That's why the fear of the Lord, Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's why the fear of the Lord is so important. You say, this is all Old Testament stuff, Pastor Jim. Okay, let's go to the New Testament, Hebrews 3.12. Beware, brethren, another version says, watch out, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. The ESV, the English Standard Version, says this, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And so David, realizing the reality that the Word of God is, is saving him from this, it's saving him from falling away from God, saving him from, from going to hell, preserving him as one of God's children. And, and you say, well, what do you mean? The one of the ways you know that you're one of God's children is that you persevere, that you continue on in the faith. And so verse 14 is really a closing prayer. A lot of pastors pray this. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart. Just think about that for a second. Hold on to those two words, my mouth and my heart. Here's the thing. You need both because 
if you're just, if your heart is not engaged, Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If your heart is not engaged, then whatever you say about God is just all talk. It's just all talk. Let the words of my mouth, keep that word, keep that there, and heart, keep that there. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength, some versions say my rock, and my redeemer. So David begins this psalm, we studied it last week, with the heavens, and he ends with our redeemer, the creator of the heavens, the Lord Jesus Christ, our rock and our redeemer, our stability and the one who purchased us because of our sins. We were slaves to sin. He purchased us by his own blood on the cross. The Bible leads us to see that we are sinners. But by seeing that, we are able to see that the Bible leads us to Jesus. That's why some of these guys say, I don't like to preach sin. I don't want to make people feel guilty. You know what? If, you don't, if the Bible doesn't preach sin, then how is it going to lead us to the need for a Savior? It can't. That's why it does. And that's why any pastor who says, I don't want to preach sin, run. Run. Jesus is the one that the sky points to. We saw that last week. Jesus is the one that the scriptures point to. Our rock and our redeemer. If you're in a place today, you're a follower of Jesus, and you're a bad, bad place today. You're just in a bad place. You know that you are far from God. I pray that today you hear the invitation and you come home and you don't stay away anymore. You say, but this is Old Testament, Pastor Jim. Is it really that different? I mean, just like the the New Testament, the Old Testament shows us that we're sinners and we need mercy. The Jews knew that they couldn't keep the Torah perfectly but God graciously provided for them a way for the forgiveness of sins. God graciously provided sacrifices to restore His people to a right relationship with Him, all pointing to what? To when God Himself would become the sacrifice and would die on a cross so that anybody that would turn to Him and put their trust in Him would repent, would believe, would look upon him and would be saved, would have the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. All those sacrifices in the Old Testament all pointed to that. You say, well, does Jesus care that if we're perfect? Does the New Testament care that if we're perfect? Listen to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 48. Therefore, you shall be perfect. Another version says you must be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. James 2.10, for whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. Holman Christian Standard Version of the same James 2.10 says this, for whoever keeps the entire law yet fails in one point is guilty of breaking it all. So the New Testament says that we have to be perfect. Now, when you and I hear that, we have a number of choices. One, we can try to be 
perfect and fail. Number two, way worse. Way worse than number one. <laughs> if, you're, if you're perfect and you fail, at least there's some hope. You can come to Jesus. Way worse is to think you are perfect. <laughs> then you're really in trouble. Or perhaps you hear that you have to be perfect and it just throws you into great despair. And so these New Testament verses are pretty clear. There's others, too, that the law, the Torah, the New Testament, that God demands perfection, 100% total perfection. And for someone who's not a follower of Jesus, that is really bad news. But the good news is one already did lead a perfect life. They knew him as Jesus of Nazareth. We know him as Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Anointed One. So we must trust solely in the forgiveness of sins offered by God through Jesus. Now remember, David talked about, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my strength, my rock, and my redeemer. Listen to what? The Apostle Paul would write a thousand years later in the New Testament after Jesus was in, had ascended into heaven. Romans 10, verse 9 and 10. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, for us, we're like, oh, I can, I mouth, I can just mouth that Jesus is the Lord. No problem. In the Roman Empire, that was a big deal. You could be killed for that. Because when you say Jesus is Lord, you're saying Caesar is not. And that, that was worthy of the death penalty. That's how they killed Jesus. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm going to tell you, I believe you have been shown the way to heaven tonight by David. So hear the invitation to be part of the kingdom of heaven. Let's review what we heard in Psalm 19. Verse 12, he talked about realizing our own sin. That's what we call the conviction of sin. We, we, we've missed the mark. We have not lived up to what we were supposed to do. We, we, were, we were not doing what we were supposed to do, and we did some stuff that, 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 that we weren't supposed to do. That's what sin is. It's, it's missing the mark. It, it's trespassing. Remember I said I had no desire to smoke. I've never really not actually never smoked a cigarette in my life, but not a, not a full one. One taste, I was like, wow, that's disgusting. But, but I, I saw the, the sign on the truck that said no smoking. I was like, I, I want to smoke. We all trespass. Also in verse 12, there's a cry out for forgiveness. He's like, God, forgive me. In verse 13, he expresses a desire to live for God, to live what we would call a desire for holiness. In verse 14, there's a cry out to God for a clean mouth and a clean heart before God. All of this, realizing your sin, crying out to God for forgiveness that David says, a desire to live for God, a cry out for a clean mouth and a clean heart. That's how you enter the kingdom of heaven. And desiring to live that way, that is how you will stay in the Christian life. That is how you will endure 
all the way to the end. And you will find it's not a burden. It's a joy living for Jesus. Well, let's pray.